Well, you'll notice in the text that we read that we're returning to several themes that we've already seen. Actually, going all the way back to chapter 1. Many of the things that we read, it was almost like we were rereading Paul's introduction into this controversy about uh, quarrels and divisions over preachers. Notice just sort of like as an overview, running your eyes across this little paragraph. In verse 18, he references the wise in this age. Well, that would be parallel to what we saw in chapter 1 verse 20 where he mentions the wise, the scribe, the debater of this age. He mentions in verse 18 a foolishness that sounds like it's a good thing. Let him become a fool. Uh, a, a so, uh, a, what we might say, a good foolishness, which sounds contrary to reality, but back in chapter 1 verse 25, he referred to the so-called foolishness of God. That would be a good foolishness. Not that there's any foolishness in God, but whatever we might think of as foolishness in God is actually supreme wisdom. In verses 19 and 20 here, he references two Old Testament texts to show us God's perspective on human wisdom, which is the exact same thing that he did back in chapter 1, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Just showing how God feels about human wisdom. He told them, or we read there in verse 21, not to boast in men. Let no one boast in men. Well, back in chapter 1, Verse 29, he said, Let no human being, or that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31, let no one, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now he's saying, let no one boast in men. He's, he's saying the same things that he said at the very beginning. A little differently, but a lot of the same things. All of this is evidence that what he's doing now is summarizing and concluding his statements with regard to this problem of divisions and quarreling over one's favorite preacher. Now, he's going to go on in chapter 4 with related uh, truth, but here he's sort of summarizing all that he said so far in this regard. And we're going to see him here summing up the error, then correcting the error, and then he lays down a principle which if they would adopt, if they would hear and live by, it would prevent the error In the future. That's what we see in these verses. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. There's reproof, there's correction, and then there's training in righteousness. And so that's the those are the three headings that I'm going to use to break up this passage. First, there is a reproof of their error, and then there's a correction of their error, and then there's the training, which will prevent the error. Some of you kids and some of you adults know what it's like to break a bone. And if you break a bone, you have to go to the doctor, and there are several things that they do. The first thing they do is take an x-ray, and they hold the x-ray up to the light so that they can expose, so that they can see the problem. Where does the problem lie? Once they figure that out, they don't just leave it there. They then have to reset the bone. Perhaps the the most painful part of the whole process. They've got to reset the bone. Put it back into place. But they're still not done. Typically, they'll put a cast around it to hold it in that set place so that it doesn't come back out of 
of where they've placed it. It has to, so that it can begin to grow back properly. Well, that's what's happening here. There's an x-ray. We see the problem again. Then there's a correction. We've got to set the bone in place. But then there's this principle, this truth or this reality that Paul gives the Corinthians that, and us, that if they would just live by it, if we could understand this, it would prevent this error from ever happening again. It will set us in place to grow properly. So those are the three ideas or three main headings. So the first thing that we see here is a reproof of their error. A reproof of their error. At the beginning of verse 18, Paul reproves the Corinthians with regard to the underlying issue involved in their divisions and quarrels. He gives them this, what we could call one all-encompassing command. At the beginning of verse 18, look at it. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Or if we wanted to make this a little more personal, it would say, or we could read it this way, do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. Or it could be translated, do not cheat yourself. Now I bring that up because it's going to come into play later. It's important in this context, the idea of self-deception and cheating oneself out of something. But that's the command. Do not deceive yourself. Now we've seen earlier in this chapter that the, one of the big issues with the Corinthians was their immaturity. Remember, I could not address you as mature. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because they were spiritually immature. And just as it is with most young people, immaturity often expresses itself in selfishness. Young people are often very selfish as just the fruit of their immaturity. It comes out in that form. A child, especially a young child, rarely likes to share their toys. And the the thing that's most often in the mind of a child and a young person is they just want to satisfy themselves. They're only thinking about themselves, selfishness, because they're immature. And, And that was the case in Corinth. Their lack of maturity manifested itself in the fact that they divided up into factions against one another because they were selfish. They were acting selfishly. They wanted to to defend their own desires, their own pleasures, their own appetites against one another. Now, of course, as we've seen, selfishness is the very opposite of Christian love. (coughs) Selfishness is what led to the divisions... It's not uncommon for people to have differences of opinion. But the fact that their selfishness also was the opposite of love, or we could say their lovelessness, led to the fact that not only did they differ in opinion, but they were willing to then go and quarrel with one another. It's one thing to have a difference of opinion. But Christian love says, though we differ... I will not quarrel with you. I will set aside my opinions so that we can get along. They had lost their love. So they were immature. They lacked in love. They were selfish. And and these sins are almost always tied together. All of them evidences of spiritual immaturity. They're immature. So they become selfish, which is the opposite of love. So they were quarreling. Here, though, he brings in something else. Another problem. 
self-deception. Self-deception, we see, is, was also deep down at the root of their problems. And self-deception is also a common trait of spiritual immaturity. Self-deception. Think about this. We, we know this is the fact. Children, and especially young people, as they begin to form opinions about the world, they typically think very highly about their own opinions and themselves. Usually they have no clue about the dangers or the consequences of their actions. And yet how difficult is it to convince a young person that you really do know better than they do? Now I recognize I'm saying this as not yet 40 years old and some of you are older than me and you're looking at me and saying, yeah, we're trying to get you to see. You, you could say it right to me and then the others of us could look to those younger than us and we could say, why is it so hard to convince you that we really do know better. An older person really does, very often, usually, especially an older Christian, they really do know better. But for a young person to admit that and embrace that and live accordingly is very difficult because they're self-deceived. It's a sign of another sign of immaturity. Self-deception or having a, an overestimated view of oneself and one's abilities and one's wisdom and insight without realizing the many errors that you probably have. That's what had gotten the Corinthians here in the first place. Self-deception. Now you say, where do we see self-deception? Well, notice what he says. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise. We'll stop there. Self-deception for the Corinthians was they thought themselves to be wise, but they weren't wise. They were deceived. It goes like this. I'm wise, therefore I believe myself to be wise, not knowing that I'm not actually wise, therefore I don't even know what wisdom is. They had deceived themselves because they thought that they were wise. Wisdom being such a prized quality among the Greeks, everyone wanted to claim it. And we've seen this several times. Even as they came into the church, they brought their so-called wisdom with them, their worldly wisdom. And then they had begun to conduct themselves according to this worldly wisdom. This is what led to the divisions, led to the quarreling. They thought that they were wise. Here's the problem. They had deceived themselves. They were not wise at all. They were self-deceived. They were so wise, think about this, they were so wise in their own eyes that they graded their preachers using the same scale that the world would use to grade its orators. Boy, what wisdom. We say that's not wise. Hopefully we understand that's not wise. They were so wise that they estimated these men using the same scale that the world uses to value or to place value and prestige upon a man. They were so wise that they gauged Paul's success using the world's scale so that they considered his suffering as a great stain upon his ministry. So wise they were. As we've seen in, in chapter 2 and then we'll see again in chapter 4, the apostles and especially Paul did not meet the standards of worldly wisdom. They didn't meet the, that criteria for greatness from the world because God's way of working is almost exclusively the opposite of the way the world works. But they had brought that worldly wisdom into the church. They thought they were wise. They would say, we know what good preaching is. 
We know what a blessed ministry looks like. We know what a real man of God looks like. We'll decide for ourselves in these matters. That was the, their, the specific area of their self-deception. Self-deception almost always has a very high estimation of one's wisdom. Very rarely do people deceive themselves into believing they're not as wise as they actually are. Usually self-deception goes one direction. I think I'm more wise than I actually am. And that's, that was the Corinthian problem. In worldly standards, they thought themselves to be very wise. They elevated their individual opinions and views to the place of supremacy so that almost every individual in the church would have said, I know best. And then they chose their favorite preachers based on their own evaluation. Well, what happens when that's challenged? If you think you know best and I think I know best, and then we come into conflict and I challenge you or you challenge me, that's going to lead to divisions and quarrels. And again, because they didn't love each other enough to set aside those opinions, that's what happened. They quarreled. It was a set up for confrontation because of this self-deception. And self-deception at its root is really just pride. I think I know best. I've got this figured out. I, I understand. I can do this. Now, the Corinthians are not the only ones who have to guard against this sin of self-deception. Listen to Romans 1. As Paul describes pretty much the universal state, fallen state of man. In Romans 1.22, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They thought they were wise. And if you read the chapter, just think about what had happened, what it's saying there. God clearly revealed himself and the things that were made. Man comes along and they say, We know better than God. We are wise. We'll not worship the Creator We'll make images of, of birds and reptiles and creeping things and we'll worship those. That's, that's wisdom, right? That's really wise. That was not wise at all. We can, we can read it now and we say, that wasn't wise at all. The problem was they claimed to be wise. They had deceived themselves. This is what we do. They had deceived themselves into thinking that their wisdom was actually better than God's. Again in Romans 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Why does he have to say this? Because our tendency is to think of ourselves too highly than we ought to think. Our tendency is to deceive ourselves about ourselves. And so we say, when we, we fall into this trap, we say, I am wise. I know how to assess myself. I know how to assess my situation. I know how to assess my needs. I can look at my options. I can figure out the best route forward. I can do this. I'm wise. And very often people on the outside are looking at us and they're saying, that, that was a horrible idea. What are you doing? But we're self-deceived. And when we live this way, what happens? When that, when that loving friend, a Christian brother or sister, tries to come to you and say, I, th I think you might be making a mistake, what do we do? We take that personally. Who do you think you are? 
We take it as an attack on our personal wisdom because we have decided we are the wise ones. You can't tell me what to do. People who are trying to help us, we, we get into conflict. We turn against those who seek to do us good. This is exactly what the Corinthians had done with one another. It's exactly what they had done with the Apostle Paul. First, First Corinthians and Second Corinthians are both filled with this idea that Paul was having to defend himself and his ministry against this church that he had helped to plant. Pride and self-deception are dangerous monsters that we have to watch out for. That's why Paul says, let no one deceive himself. This is what he reproves them for, the, the sin, self-deception. And the language, again, it's a, what we might call a negative imperative or a, a prohibition. Do not do this. You may not deceive yourself. Just as God says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not deceive yourself. It's a command. To be self-deceived is a sin that we have to guard against. So he, he lays the x-ray out upon the light and he exposes. Here, here's your problem, Corinthians. You're self-deceived. You think you're so wise, but you're not wise at all. Number two, he gives the correction for their error. Again, it wouldn't be wise and no, no doctor would be considered a good doctor if he charged $8,000 for an x-ray and he says, well, there's your problem. You can pay at the front desk. No, we, we want to help me with the problem. Let's put it back and let's fix it. So that's what he goes on to do. He gives this corrective. Let's read it again beginning in verse 18 now through verse 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So again, here, what he's doing is he's he, defining the specific self-deception that was at play in the Corinthians. And then he lays out what we, we could call the pathway to true wisdom. And then he enforces that with these two passages from the Old Testament. So first he points out their specific flavor of self-deception. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. For the Corinthians, self-deception was thinking oneself wise, and here he adds this phrase, in this age. That is more than likely what he means is according to the thinking that characterizes the present age. Wise in this present age is more than likely synonymous with those phrases we saw back in chapter 1, like debater of this age, or the wisdom of the world, or in chapter 1, verse 26, he actually says, wise according to worldly standards. More than likely, that's what he's saying here. If anyone thinks that he is wise according to worldly standards, he says they're actually only deceiving themselves. They are cheating themselves out of the kind of wisdom that truly matters. And so he gives us this prescription, again, the pathway to attaining, attaining true wisdom as God defines it. He's saying, let me help you get to true wisdom. You want wisdom. The Corinthians wanted wisdom. He's saying, let me help you. And he, he gives this prescription, which is the one thing that the average 
I could say immature person, young or old, especially spiritually immature, but young people especially, the one thing that seems like it's the most difficult thing to do. He says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Become a fool. Again, that word fool, the concept of foolishness, is, is not meant to be taken negatively. Not a fool in God's eyes, a fool in, in the world's eyes. And we could take that phrase in this age and, and put it in here where it would read like this interpretively. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool in this age, that he may become truly wise. Let him, let him be considered a fool by the world, that he might be wise according to God's standard of wisdom. Let that deceived man reject the wisdom that characterizes this fallen world. If you will reject that, if you will renounce the so-called wisdom of the world, then you're finally on the pathway to true wisdom. That's what he's saying. The pathway to true wisdom is not self-deception. It's not just thinking you're wise because you meet the world standards. No, the pathway to true wisdom is real honest, spirit-illuminated self-awareness. Self-awareness. Just knowing what God's Word says about you and believing it. Listen to these words from Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, if you thought about that for just a second, you could ask, well, who calls out for insight except for the person who recognizes that they need it but they don't have it. If you wake up every day and you say, well, I'm glad I've got insight, well, you're not going to run to the Lord and, and, and call out for insight. You've got to recognize you don't have it. Then you will call out for it. Or, or who seeks for understanding like silver, except for someone who realizes that when it comes to understanding, they're poor. They're impoverished. They need it. So then they will seek for it. We deceive ourselves into thinking, if we deceive ourselves into thinking we're already wise, we will not seek wisdom from God. We won't go to the one place where it can be found because we've convinced ourselves we've already got it. It's exactly what Christ taught when He said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until we become poor, until we recognize we are impoverished, that we are nothing, that we are beggars, we're not going to cry out to God. When you realize you're a beggar, when it comes to wisdom, when you realize, I'm a beggar, I've got nothing to offer, I've got nothing to bring to the table, then you will go to the Lord and you will find wisdom. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. The mystery of the kingdom is hidden from those who are wise and understanding. Now we know he doesn't mean with godly wisdom and godly understanding. He means those who are wise and understanding in this age according to worldly standards. Those people, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
That it's hidden from them. But he says, you've revealed these things unto babes, helpless little children. In Matthew 18, a similar statement is made. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were arguing about who was the greatest. They were self-deceived. I think I'm the greatest. Well, no, I think I'm the greatest. Self-deceived. He says, you've got it backwards. Wh whoever is putting themselves in the front for greatest in the kingdom, we can, we can go ahead and say that one's not the greatest in the kingdom. He says, you've got to humble yourself, become like a helpless, needy child before God. Then God will give you wisdom. This is the pathway to true wisdom. Judge yourself with right judgment. Think soberly. Denounce the wisdom of the world. Renounce your own so-called wisdom. Whatever you might have picked up from, from the world over the years. If you lived in the world for many years before becoming a Christian, you've picked up a lot more than others who might have come to the Lord in, in, uh, early in their life. And you have to renounce it. You have to say, all of that stuff the world taught me, I get rid of it. I renounce it. I don't have wisdom anymore. And then you will go to God. Learn to tremble in the presence of God before whose face you live and think and speak and to whom you will give an account for your actions. Empty yourself. Become a fool. Become beggarly. Become poor. Turn and become like a little child before Him. Like a little child walking through a world full of snares and traps and pits hunted like a helpless lamb by the demons of hell. Recognize where you are in this world. What, what is your position in this world? Recognize that. Understand the smallest step off of the pathway of godly wisdom could lead to awful consequences, not the least of which would be sin against God. Recognize that. You're not strong. You're not mighty. You're not powerful. You don't have this. Recognize that. That's what he's saying. When you become like a fool in the eyes of the world and in your own eyes, well, then you'll make your ear attentive to wisdom. You'll incline your heart to understanding. You'll call out for insight. You'll seek for wisdom like silver. You'll go after it. But not until then. Until then, you won't. He says, become a fool that you may become wise. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Any wisdom or knowledge or understanding that you might have that came from anywhere besides the Lord, it's not true wisdom. God says that's foolishness. That's silly. God gives this kind of wisdom. Until we're willing to admit that we are bankrupt and in need of help from God, we will remain self-deceived. We will think, I'm just fine. I've got this. I can do this. I can figure this out. And what's going to happen? We've seen it many times. You will consistently get yourself into problem after problem after problem. And it will always be somebody else's fault. The world's after me. The church is after me. I'm a victim. Everybody's after me. I'm doing everything right. I just don't see what the problem is. Nobody else can get along with me. Nothing I do ever works out. It's everybody else's fault. It can't be mine because I'm wise. Well, we don't want to be there. We have to humble ourselves and say, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not wise. 
and then you can go to God for wisdom. The pathway to true wisdom is admitting that you are not wise and that without God's supernatural intervention, you will remain in blind ignorance. We have to learn to to view ourselves the way God views us, which is not the way the world thinks. The world counts it foolishness. This is not the message the world gives to its disciples. Now Paul then reinforces all of that with these two Old Testament texts. Verses 19 and 20, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. This is God's perspective on man's so-called wisdom. Maybe, maybe when I say all this about renouncing or denouncing the wisdom of the world, considering yourself uh, poor and impoverished, you say, I just, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to adopt that perspective. Well, Paul says, let, let me just give you God's perspective on what you think is wisdom. Here's how God views the worldly wise. He quotes from Job 5.13, which says, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. You see, the people of the world, the, the worldly wise men, they, they think they're slick. They think they're smart. They think they can figure things out. They think that their schemes are going to help them to advance and grow and get all the things that they want. And yet it says God catches them in their craftiness. He stops them right in their tracks. The the best, most crafty schemes that man can come up with in this world, God says, that's silly. And He stops it whenever He pleases. You you could imagine the the little child playing hide-and-seek in their house. And they've come up with this scheme, the perfect scheme. I'll never get found. No one will ever find me. They pull their hat down over their eyes, standing in the middle of the room where everybody can see them, but they cover up their own eyes. Because they think, they can't see me. I can't see me. So surely no one else can see me. What else can they not see? They can't see that they're still standing in the middle of the room and everybody can see them. They're self-deceived. That's a, this is like the, the schemes of the worldly wise in this world. It's so crafty to them, God says, Everybody can see you. This is folly. He, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And he quotes from Psalm 94, 11, The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Man's thoughts, man's wisdom, the greatest thoughts he has are like a puff of smoke. They're here and gone. It's limited. It's fading. It's short-lived. And God knows all this. He's looking down on all this. This is God's perspective. And these texts, again, they reinforce what he's been saying from chapter 1. Why would you settle for worldly wisdom? Why would you keep walking in that pathway when we see from God's Word that He says, number one, that wisdom is foolish. That's going nowhere. It's a vapor. And number two, if you will just come to me, I will give you heavenly wisdom. It's foolish to continue down that path. Why would you set yourself up as the measure of wisdom when God says it's foolishness? Well, again, what is their problem? Self-deception. They can't see it. They're blind to it. So this is the corrective to their self-deception. Rather than exalt themselves in their own wisdom, they must renounce themselves and their own wisdom. They must become fools as the world sees it, so that they can become wise as God sees it. And here, 
as I said, Paul sort of sets the bone, which is the most painful part about it. You've got to renounce your wisdom. You've got to admit, I don't have wisdom. I'm foolish. Apart from God, I know nothing. Apart from God, I will walk right to destruction. The ways of the world and the ways of God are reversed. They're opposed to one another. Think about this theme throughout the New Testament. If you would be first, you must be last. If you would live, you must die. If you would triumph, you must take up your cross. If you would be glorified, you must first suffer. Here he says, if you would be wise, you must first become foolish. You must renounce all of that worldly thinking. Only an empty vessel can be filled and only an empty soul can be filled with what God has to give. And so we must empty ourselves of whatever wisdom we've adopted from the world or from our own sinful nature and proclivities. We must empty ourselves of that so that God can then begin to pour in His heavenly divine wisdom. Then we can become wise. And that's a hard thing to do. Maybe the most difficult thing will any of us will ever accomplish in this life is actually becoming convinced that we really are not quite as wise as we think we are. And we come and we tremble before God's Word every single day saying, I don't want to leave the house until you show me where to step and what to do and what to say because I will ruin this. Even as believers, we know it. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, if I walk, if I get up from this seat, I will ruin this day. I will ruin this household. I will ruin this family. We must have the power of God. So he sets the bone. He gives them that correction. And then thirdly, he puts on the cast. He gives them this training which would prevent the error. He gives them this way of thinking which if they would adopt it, it would help them in the future. Look at verses 21 to 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Again, I say he's telling them how to think. So much of the scripture, especially the New Testament, is just, here's how to think. Think this way. How are we transformed by the renewing of our minds? Think this way. Your thinking is wrong think rightly. So here he's telling us, he's telling them how to think. Now if we wanted to just briefly recap their errors, and I, what I'm doing is I'm going to set up what he's about to say here because we've got to keep in mind what their errors were. Self-deception and so-called wisdom had led to boasting in their favorite preachers. Now remember back in verse 5, Paul had already begun to try to rein in the way that they had exalted these men by saying, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Why would you boast in servants? He's already said that. It would be silly to claim these men because they're just servants. Think with me. To boast in a servant and then get behind a servant and divide into factions over servants was actually to elevate a servant to the status of master. It was essentially to subjugate themselves under a servant with an allegiance that only belongs to the master. And this is what they had done. 
So notice the irony here. We could say the foolishness of the way we tend to act. So they're self-deceived, so they think they're wise. They're high in their own esteem. Using that supposed wisdom, they decide which minister is their personal favorite. They say, I'm, I'm wise. I can pick my favorite. It's, it's Peter. He's the best. Well, how do you know? Oh, I'm wise. Of course I know who the best is. So they pick their favorite preacher. But when they elevate these men in this way, what they have done is they have taken a servant and elevated him to the status of a master. And if that man is the master, then what am I? Now I'm the servant. He's supposed to be the servant, but now I'm serving him. This is the, the, the foolishness, or we could say the, the irony of their foolishness. They had exalted themselves so highly that they became slaves of men, slaves of servants. Isn't that bright? That's genius. But this is the, fo- the, the foolishness of the way they were thinking. It would be like if I said, I, I'm a king, I, or I believed I was a king, and I got a sword, and I was going to, to knight you know, what you, you, you make someone a knight, you touch each of their shoulders and there's this ceremony. I'm going to deem this man a knight. I'm going to knight him my favorite preacher. This man, he's the best. I just know it. He's the, he's the one I choose to be the one I follow. I've decided that. Why? Well, because I'm king. I can do that. Well, what does it mean that he's the best? Well, it means whatever he does, I do. Whatever he says, I say. Whatever he teaches, I believe. Whatever he practices, I practice. Well, it sounds like you're not the king anymore. Sounds like you're following him. Sounds like he's the king. So you were so high and mighty as king that you made somebody else king over you. That's what they had done. That man would now have a mastery over me that no man should have, especially a man who's been given to be a servant. In my so-called wisdom, I would have designated a man to be my master. That's what the Corinthians had done. That's their problem. So then it's that, that twofold irony. I'm going to boast in a man, but I'm also going to become a slave of that man. It's that twofold irony that he corrects here. First, he says it very, just very plainly, verse 21, So let no one boast in men. We've already seen this. Boasting in men is contrary to boasting in the Lord. No man is to boast in the presence of God. If anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. So do not boast in men. But then he points out why this is so silly. Why would it be so foolish to pick out your favorite preacher and stand behind him and make him you know, your, your guy? Why is that silly? Keep reading. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours. Now, when he mentions Paul and Apollos and Cephas, those were the ministers that had been had preached in the church. We could call that the ministry of the church. The world, that's the entire created order of things. Life or death, present or future, these are events and times in which all human beings share and experience. Paul says, all of these are Yours. What he's saying is, all of these things are for your service. They were given to serve you. 
In other words, he's opening up and expanding what he said in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Here he's saying, Paul, Peter, Cephas, the world, things to come, things in the past, life, death, the world itself, it's all at your service. It's all been given for your service. Those given to the church to minister, they're your servants. They're your servants. The world and all that is in it, it's all for your benefit. It's for your service. For the saints, what does Paul say? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Life and death, these are in my service. These are good for me. The present or the future, whatever is happening now or what will happen, it's all for the service of the church. It's all in the service of the saints. All of this, Paul says, is meant to be a, a servant or the servants of the church and of the saints. These things are our servants, so we ought not to become their servants. Don't let them become masters of us. They're meant to be our servants. Now remember I said that this notion of self-deception could also be translated self-cheating. Let no one cheat himself. Well, now you see why that's important. What Paul's getting at here is that when these Corinthians would pick out their one favorite preacher who was supposed to be their servant, not only had they made themselves servants, but they were cheating themselves out of all of these other men who were also in their service. When one says, I follow Paul, well, he's cheating himself out of the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Apollos. Well, if we take what was probably meant when they would say, I follow Christ, the, the, the ones who would say, well, I don't need these human preachers. I have, I have Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, then you're cheating yourselves out of the ministry of the men Christ sent to His church. If someone says, oh, I, just, I just want to be in heaven. Well, you might be cheating yourselves out of the blessings of this world. The created world that God has given us. When somebody says, I just want to die. Well, he's cheating himself out of the blessings of this life. The flip side of that would be someone who is mastered by death. Afraid of death. If you're afraid of death, you're cheating yourself out of what will be the gateway into the presence of Christ. Oh, not death, not death, never death. I can't endure death. Why? Are you afraid to walk through the door into the presence of your Savior? That's your servant. Death is a servant for the saints. It is a part of the curse. But it, is, it has been made our servant to bring us into the presence of our Lord. When somebody says, I just want to live in the now and live in the moment. Well, they cheat themselves out of the blessings of the future. Or if somebody says, I just can't wait until things get better. Well, they cheat themselves out of the blessings of the present. Just as the irony of the Corinthians' self-exaltation had made them slaves, so their standing behind these men had cheated them out of the great breadth of what God had for them. God has so much more for us than we typically understand. Let no man cheat himself. Don't cheat yourself out of what God says, here, take this. And, and He just keeps giving and keeps giving and keeps giving. It would be foolish for us to say, oh, I, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I don't, I don't need that. God's saying, no, trust me, you, you need more. Just take it. He wants to bless us. He says, all are yours. And this is the truth or the reality that if adopted would prevent them from running into the same error again. If we adopt this idea, this mindset, it will prevent us from running into this type of thinking. 
Now we might wonder, how can we be so sure? It is hard to believe all things are yours. How, how can, can we really become convinced of this truth, all things are yours? Well, I would say the best answer is in making note of the fact that God gave us His own Son. He gave us His own Son. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God's given us His Son. He didn't spare His own Son. All of these other things, they're nothing compared to the Son of God. You think, I, I can't believe God would give, give us the whole world. He's already given you something better than the world, greater than the world. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. If Christ would come to serve us, what would God withhold from our service? We're the saints of the Most High God. You understand that, right? Everything that's happening now until Christ returns is happening to serve His church. Everything is for the cause of the people of God in the world for the glory of Christ. Everything. God has given us these things, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the, what we could say, the ministry of the Word. I can't believe God would really give us all of that. Is Christ not greater than all of the prophets and apostles? They all spoke of Him. The prophets diligently inquired about Him. They longed to see His day. So if God would give us His Son, why would we count it strange that He would give us all of these men for the service of the church so that we can grow in a greater understanding of His Son? Or the world. Would God give us the world? Is Christ not greater than the world? Is He who created the world not worthy of more glory than the world itself? All created things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. They are to display His glory. He made the world. He upholds the world by the word of His power. The created world that shatters our mind. He orders it all. He is the wisdom behind it all. Well, God's already given us Him, that one. So why would we be shocked that we would, He would say, the world is yours? He's already given us one greater than the world. Life or death, is Christ not greater than life? He is life. He's the giver of life. Of course He's greater than life itself. For us to live is Christ. Psalm 63 says, His steadfast love is better than life. God gave us Him. Why would we be shocked that life given to us is meant to be a servant to us? For us to use in the service of our King. Is Christ not greater than death? Is He not the one who defeated death? Wasn't it Jesus Christ who took the sting out of death? Death is nothing to Him. Death is now His servant. Again, death is the doorway that He uses to bring us to Himself. Now if the Father would give us His Son, who is the holder of the keys of death and Hades, is it not a lesser gift that He would say, death is yours? That's your servant. Don't be mastered by death. Don't be a slave of thoughts of death. That's your servant. It should be no strange thing to us. The present or the future. Is Christ 
not greater than time itself. Time is probably our greatest treasure. You've probably heard the old statement, something like, you know, everybody gets some, and once you get it, you never, never get more, and once you've used it, you never get any more, something like that. It's, it, time's a great treasure. This creature, unheard and unseen, which chips away at us and makes changes to us with every tick of the clock, whether we're waking or sleeping, this powerful, powerful thing called time, our greatest treasure, not one of us can withstand its effects upon us. It's constantly changing us. All of us have gone through a series of changes since we sat down just because the clock is ticking. It's a creature that is affecting us, moving us, altering us all the time, and yet Jesus is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It hasn't changed Him a lick. He's the same. He's not affected by time. He's beyond its reach. He's the one who makes it work. He started the clock and He keeps it ticking. Now think about it. If God would not spare His own Son, the author of time, the reason for time, the Lord of time, then why would it be strange that He would say, things present, things to come, they're yours. They're for your service. He's already given us His Son. If our Heavenly Father would give us His Son, who is greater than all these other things, why would He not freely give you these lesser things as well? Knowing these things will serve you, they will serve us, and as they serve us, they're actually serving the interest and glory of that same Son. It's not just selfishly pouring into a us to terminate in us it's to glorify his own son if we would consider that truth for just a minute it would settle the issue everything is ours it's for our service god means for us to take it and to use it to glorify his son thomas brooks says all things are prepared ordered and ordained by god to serve the interest of his people to work for the good of His people, to help on the happiness and blessedness of His people. So don't cheat yourself. All things are yours. But on the other hand, we have to balance this. He says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All those other things are meant for your service and benefit. Don't cheat yourself. At the same time, you are meant to serve Christ, who belongs to God, God's Christ. You're not the master. You're not the master. You belong to Christ who bought you with His blood. And that Christ is God's Christ. God's appointed prophet, priest, and king. God's mediator. The one God sent. You belong to Him. Our allegiance is to Christ. So we are not to become the slaves of men. At the same time, our allegiance is to Christ. We are not masters of our own fate. We are under Him, and all of these things are given for our service. And again, is, is Paul not just repeating what he said at the very beginning? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What, what he's saying is, wait a second, I thought y'all already had a master. Y'all going to get behind men and make more masters out of men? Y'all already got a master. Y'all already got an owner. Why would they clamor after certain teachers? as if those men were Christ. Why become slaves of men when your servitude is to Christ alone? That's what he's saying. You're not masters, but you serve a gracious master. 
who has richly blessed us with everything to enjoy. Your master has ascended into heaven and given gifts for you, for your service, for your benefit, for your growth, for the advancement of his kingdom, for his church. No man has mastery over you. Life is not your master. Death is not your master. The world is not your master. Time is not your master. Christ alone is your master and king. When we recognize that, that draws us together. We've got a, we've got a common king, a common lord. That reality puts an end to contention and nurtures unity in the church. One master. One master. I'm not your master. You're not my master. We are not masters of one another. We lay aside anything that would, would come into competition with that one master. And as we do that, we are drawn closer to one another. That's what he's saying. So what can we take away from all this? Four, four brief things. The first is we need to guard against self-deception. Guard against self-deception. We must be on our guard against thinking too highly of ourselves, of overestimating our abilities, of overstepping our God-given boundaries because our natural proclivity is to esteem ourselves too highly. You just got to recognize that. The first step in not being self-deceived is recognizing how easily it is to be self-deceived. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I know that's not me because I wallow in self-deprecation all day, every day. Well, you're self-deceived because you're not believing what God has said about you. God says you're His son or daughter, His blood-bought saint. You belong to Him. That's, that's your status. So if you're lower than that if in your mind, if, if you're lower than that, well, then you're saying, God, I see what you say in your word, but I disagree. I'm less than nothing and I'm worthless. It's the same thing. It's self-deception. So guard against that. God's Word will tell us everything we need to know about ourselves. It's not, it's not all great. Most of it's not great. But a lot of it is really, really good. And we have to believe what God's Word says about us. To guard against self-deception. Number two, nurture. Hear this. This is be helpful. Nurture a spirit. Maybe I should add a healthy spirit or healthy attitude of self-doubt. Nurture a healthy spirit or healthy attitude of self-doubt. There is, there is unhealthy self-doubt. Now when I say self, I'm referring to yourself apart from God and His Word. Most of us have been trained to build our self-esteem and to believe in ourselves. Most of our minds are still placarded with those cheesy posters that were in the wall in the guidance counselor's office about Believing in yourself and doing everything for yourself and living for yourself and reach down inside of you and pull it out and, and all of that stuff. It, it's, that's worldly wisdom. We've, we've been steeped in the religion of self-trust. I'm going to go into this office and this person's going to remind me of everything I can do all by myself apart from God. I'm going to, I'm going to leave feeling so much better. That's worldly wisdom. If, if we think for just a few minutes about where we've come from and our own sinfulness and our many great failures that were the fruit of our own minds, we'll learn to stop trusting ourselves so much. Or if we just read a Bible a little bit, see what it has to say about our, our minds and our tendencies, we'd stop trusting ourselves so much. If we'd notice all the things that God has given to help us along, maybe we'd realize that God didn't intend for us to trust ourselves by ourselves so much. Why did He give so many gifts? Because you're not supposed to just be trusting in yourself. Just develop that healthy attitude of self-doubt. 
Become a fool that you may become wise. Number three, then seek godly wisdom. Seek godly wisdom. When we think of wisdom, we think of the Proverbs, Solomon. God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And God has already pretty much answered our prayers by giving us an entire book of wisdom in His Word. Go to God and seek His wisdom. Wisdom is found in God's Word. Wisdom is found in the multitude of counsel that comes from other saints. Most of us can probably point to several older godly saints who could probably give us some counsel. And I can tell you from experience, it will make them, it will thrill them. You know an older Christian. It will thrill them for you to go to them and say, could you help me understand this? Could you give me some counsel? I'm struggling here. Am I thinking of this rightly? It's not a bother. They will have to fight within themselves the tendency toward pride because it's so encouraging and uplifting when somebody comes and asks for advice or counsel. But make use of that. That's why God gave them. If you really believe yourself to be bankrupt, then you're going to seek wisdom like silver. God will give it. And number four, don't cheat yourself out of God's good gifts. Often in pride and self-deception, we think that we'll show the world or we'll, we'll show the church how spiritually strong we are by limiting ourselves to the many gifts or to to the, God, the gifts that God has given us. We limit ourselves. We think it makes us look strong. I knew a man one time, probably still preaching, but it, it, his bold claim was, all, all I need is a Schofield Study Bible and I'm ready to go. I don't need all that other stuff. All I need is a Schofield Study Bible. It's all my daddy used, a Schofield Study Bible. Well, we would say, might want to get a, maybe another study Bible or commentaries. Maybe something helped Mr. Schofield out a little bit. Uh, he, he would, if that's the way you think, you're cheating yourself out of, of 19 centuries of gifts that Christ has given to His church. Don't cheat yourself. All things are yours. You, you read the Proverbs. You read the old writers. A, a leaf on a tree was theirs. That's, the, read Christ. A, a lily in, in the field was a sermon illustration. The sparrows were a sermon illustration. Everything was His. Nothing outside of His reach. All things are yours. If your aim is to truly submit to and serve your Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a world of gifts to use for that purpose. Grab them and use them. All things are already from Him, through Him, and to Him. They already exist for His glory. You would just be coming in along that, that stream to glorify Him with the things that He has made. Let's make sure that we're busy using all of God's gifts to serve God's Christ.